Every day we'll park in a different port where you can discover the proof of one person's secret. I'll announce what secret it is to look for and give you a clue, which will tell you what to do and where to go on shore. Now, if you solve the clue properly, it'll lead you to where the proof is. And those who haven't found it don't score, right? Right. Oh, if you could direct as fast as you catch on a game, you'd never be a has-been again. So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we are unspooling a whodunit with the only film ever written by Broadway legend Stephen Sondheim and acclaimed actor Anthony Perkins, and a major inspiration for Ryan Johnson for his Knives Out series. It's 1973's The Last of Sheila, Jared. Oh, dude, I am excited to, to be diving into this movie as always dude i'm always excited to talk movies with you man and this night is no different yeah it's uh this is a hip shot we we threw this one on the board last week so it is it didn't even spend more than two minutes on the board before it got knocked off first time ever and i'm i don't know i can't tell if i'm surprised or not that it took this long but back to back and i love this idea you came up with that title in the pre-show just hip shot that's what we're going to use for the number 13 moving forward is a little like a movie who, who's ever week it is to nominate for that replacement. It's got to be something uh, we don't really know that much about. We Maybe we overheard something, we saw something, whatever it is, but it's a hip shot. I think it's also just a movie that you come up with on the spot. It's just, it's something that for whatever reason that day it's grabbing you and you just throw it on and, and you, you got to know like nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. Minimal amount of information, I think, is an important factor. Hmm. Like, it can't be like, oh, Karate Kid, I've always wanted to see it. Or, you know, like, I had some in the chamber this week uh, that I've been kind of circling for a little while, last few weeks, but it's like, ah, not right, not right. And there were a couple that I was really excited about, but I had to kind of push them aside for now because they're not hip shots. And uh, I'm excited to get to my nominees for sure, but we will get there in due time and... Uh, interested in kind of hearing what you thought of the last of sheila man yeah sure. yeah well we'll get into it but uh let's do a little board review here first of all we should mention this is back-to-back 13s uh, as i already said uh, the overall score right now is 27 to 20 and a half in favor of me yeah um, see we haven't really been keeping track of that for a while so i had forgotten you're kind of you're kind of pulling away a little bit well, i feel like i had cl- i closed the gap but that's a pretty significant lead i mean i've had five of the last six so oh, that makes sense, man. Yeah, I mean, I've I've put a little distance between us. We we were pretty much even until forty two, and then uh, forty three through forty eight has been a little bit of a uh, yeah, me running train on the board here. Yeah. I hope that someday you put a movie on the board accidentally that cannot be viewed easily, and that way you also have a half tick mark on your side as well. I was kind of wondering if this dream. one would end up being that. Yeah, yeah, because The Last of Shield was a hip shot. We didn't really know, but thank God. And I guess I could just roll into that now with a streaming check. It is a movie you can find. Last mm. of Sheila is uh, is a pay-to-rent sort of situation. Not available for free as far as we can tell at time of recording, which is a tiny bit surprising given the amount of light that Ryan Johnson has been shedding on this film as of late, which is great. Uh, but um, currently, just only pay to rent. If you enjoy whodunits, 
murder mysteries, that sort of thing. Kick in a couple of bucks and uh, you can catch it on your favorite streaming platform. Yeah, we'll get to it. But I, I think it's well worth your time if you're into this, uh, this genre. But uh, let's do a quick review of everything on the board currently. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Universal Soldier. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, The Last of Sheila, today's episode. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. Terminator. You know, and, and Going to uh, kind of the the lopsidedness of the last six weeks, the board is pretty lopsided in your favor right now. We've got I've I've only got let's see one two three four five six seven I've only, after this movie gets removed and you replace it I've only got seven on the board so you you've got you've got a lot got a of chance you got a lot of opportunities here I got a chance to close granted two of those are are guest choices but still oh right 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 but. Uh... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all shakes out, man. And as we've been saying, you know, Drew, you're on a bit of a hot streak. It's almost silly to say because this movie just got put on the board last week. But for those who didn't listen to that episode, kind of what led to you hearing about this movie and what what led to you kind of wanting to throw it up on the board? Well, you mentioned Ryan Johnson and that connection. I mean, it's a movie that I've been pretty aware of since the press tour for Knives Out, I guess. I mean, he definitely brought it up at that point, but it's it's been brought up a lot more with the release of Glass Onion. Um, and, you know, watching the movie, you can totally see why. I mean, that this movie directly inspired a lot of what happens in, in uh, uh, Glass Onion. And, you know, not going to spoil that movie, but I will say, you know, it, it's, it is very different, but there are elements that, that tie the two together, uh, pretty clearly. So, yeah, I mean, Ryan Johnson bringing it up as, as was kind of how it got on my radar. I've had a lot of fun with these murder mysteries and, and the rise of, uh, of that genre or, you know, reawakening of that genre with, with Knives Out and Glass Onion. I think, it's just it's it's something that I'm not super familiar with. That being the the history of the whodunit genre. Like I've never read an Agatha Christie novel. I've never really you know dove into the the Hercule Poirot uh, extended universe. So I you know it's not something that I'm intimately familiar with. But it's something that I've found a lot of enjoyment recently out of and you know, wanted to, to get an idea of uh, one of these touch points that, that uh, Johnson has brought up in relation to those movies. So that's kind of where it comes from. And then, you know, when it, when it came to putting something on the board last week, I literally just scanned my list and I was like, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, from the hip, let's do it. I mean, because originally we were like, well, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was from the hip. So let's keep that going. Hip shot. Let's do this uh, Ryan Johnson thing. And I like I like what you're saying about well, I should just say, too, I, I'm very similar to you in I do not have a lot of whodunit experience. Like, I took a crime and mystery class in high school, and we watched some, like, an Agatha Christie movie, and I enjoyed it, uh, but it didn't really, like, lead me down the path of, of wanting to explore more. I remember reading some Sherlock Holmes novels when I was younger and mm-hmm. digging those, but it's just never been a genre that's interested me. But like you, I have deeply enjoyed the last two Ryan Johnson whodunits 
the, you know, Benoit Blanc saga, or whatever it's going to be called at the end of the day. And I think it's fun that we get an opportunity through this show to like, hey, let's let's water that plant a little bit. Let's expand and see where a lot of this stuff is coming from. And, you know, you mentioned like Glass Onion and, and how it is very clear to see the similarities, but they're totally different films. I completely agree. It's the it's the type of homage that I like, you know, like kind of like we were talking about in the Hateful Eight episode where like you can see homages to the thing. But like you have to be really familiar with the thing to really catch them. They're totally different films. Mm -hmm. This is very much like that. There are scenes set in really similar locations, and there are little like hat tips here and there, but they're totally different movies. So it's it's a great level of homage, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think I think you know one of the primary drives for me in doing this show is like understanding influences and where things come from, and like giving context to our modern movie watching sensibilities like like I think you know I I I had a friend years ago who was a a a big movie person and he had this opinion that well modern movies suck because this has all been done before and we should just like watch the things that that set it up and and I I see where he's coming from I don't agree I I love modern filmmaking and I love like the fact that it's kind of like taking these these well-trodden territories and and expanding on them or twisting them in a new way I think that's really interesting and I've seen a lot of the stuff in my lifetime that's come out but it's nice to use this as an opportunity to be like where did that come from what what is where where is this stemming from and and you know this is just a a, a really cool watch in that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's funny too like thinking of your friend that you mentioned like at least he's not like i was with old movies where like you know before this show and when i was younger i was like well old movies stink because they're old like you know that's that's an even dumber position but to throw a little shade on him as well you know it's like kind of like we don't have to pick a side <laughs> like it's not one or the other like there are tons of great modern day movies and it's fun to see you know, to trace back their genealogy and all that stuff. But, you know, they're evolving into their own things at the same time, or at least that's what I'm interested. They have to be bringing something unique to the table, but it's, it's really cool as we, as we're going through the show and seeing some of these origin stories, it's like, Oh, I could see a little bit of that in there. I can Mm -hmm. see a little bit of that. And it's, it's definitely made me appreciate both modern film and older film more for different reasons. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like a nice, kind of overall like wellspring that's not the word but it's like it's tying everything together just to be fair to my friend uh he, this was when we were like 18 so opinions yeah. opinions are colored by by our yeah. age at the time a little bit but i mean yeah. i see what he's he was saying yeah no i get um, it yeah, and, and all, i it's... and i think it's interesting it's just i think the takeaway was what i disagreed with yeah yeah uh, which sure. which is like i mean he literally like would not watch a movie that was older than like 1960 mm-hmm Yeah. (laughs) And also, like, I love when we come to movies from this way. Like, we've had a couple on this show in the past that are, like, directors we like have shouted them out. And it must be so fun when you're a director like Ryan Johnson, who's very accomplished in his career so far and very well respected. And and from all interviews I've seen with him, he just seems like a great guy. He's, Mm -hmm. like, seems very down to earth. No one has a bad word to say about Ryan Johnson. Yeah. I mean, and he's proud of the work he's done, but, like, like he's not he's very grounded about it all it seems which is just awesome but it must be great to get to that level and to be someone like him 
who is just a lover of of film and cinema. But you get to be when you have this position of uh, of creative power, you get an opportunity to shine light on things in the past that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of. And that yeah. just must be great fun for them to be like, let me tell you about this movie that I think is criminally underseen in modern day times. It's mm-hmm. really good. It was really influential to me. And he's kind of I, I don't like the term platform because I think it's used in a lot of different ways these days. But he's using his position to kind of be like, check this thing out. See this thing, this movie from 73, and again, I think this movie was very well received when it came out, but like, I had never heard of it before you put it on the board, or before maybe I had overheard Ryan Johnson mentioning it, so it just must be cool to be in his position and be like able to shout out kind of forgotten gems a little bit, and, and bring them back to the surface a little. So all that said, Drew, how did you feel on first viewing, and uh, did you see it once, twice, and, and yeah, how did it sit with you? So I watched it once for the first time over the weekend, uh, and then I rewatched it this morning to to prep for the show. My initial reaction was a little a little confusion for the first like hour of of my first watch. By that I mean I was so taken aback by how bad the direction of this movie was that. It was making me feel like, oh no, am I not gonna like this? I I really like this movie. The back half of it, when when the mystery actually really kind of kicks into gear and and you start to see it unravel itself, I really fell in love with it. But I was so blown away by how awfully this movie is directed from a visual standpoint i mean it's directed like a tv movie and i i just was like i was not into it for the first hour primarily because of that and i was like and i i you know i do think that this movie takes a leisurely pace in laying out the the different you know chess pieces on the board um and i you know it, it was just it wasn't grabbing me. So I think if anyone's listening to this that hasn't watched it yet, give it time. It's a movie that needs its time to kind of like settle into the character, settle into the different, you know, like like positions of, of everybody who hates who and, and, you know, what the motivations of everything are. Like once it kicks into gear, the, the script of this movie is like, it just sings. It, it's so well constructed. And, and I like, as the movie you know, comes to its conclusion, I was so blown away by the way that it had doled out all these little pieces that I hadn't even considered until until it starts showing you why those pieces were there. So I think overall, I really love the movie. I, I you know, I, I had a great time with it. But yeah, I mean, the, I, I still am just hung up yeah. with like Herbert Ross's direction in this is just, it's pitiful, man. It, like really? I, I couldn't stand it. Do you mind if we unpack that a little yeah, bit? No, I, I want to say too. So you say like the sum of its parts by the end of the experience, you loved it. Yeah, but because, it was a bit of a struggle. Yeah, because I mean the the reason to watch this movie is the script, right? right. Like like you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's true of of any whodunit really, is like you're there to to watch this thing unveil itself, yeah. and, and to puzzle. try and to try and piece things together while you're watching it. Like that's the fun mm-hmm. of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't think that the direction being bad is necessarily a major knock on it. It's just something that I was hung up on watching. It. Right. 
So were you saying that it just felt a little stiff? Did it seem clumsy? When you say like visually that first hour, you, you, you were kind of wrestling with it. Was it just, um, was it, were there, was there anything specifically that was striking you as just not working or was it, did it just seem kind of stodgy? It's, it's just, um, it's uninteresting. Like mm. the locale of this movie being in the south of France, it's criminal how how uninviting the direction makes that whole like uh, setting look. Like I, I think like I wasn't grabbed by the setting number one, which is shocking given where it is, and then number two, like the way he uses his camera, the way he positions it, the way he edits, and the way it, like he's using all these dolly like zooms and stuff and. Like, it just was boring. Like, it wasn't, like, like it had no energy to it. It was, like, it was lifeless. Um, I think the color palette is really bland. I think that the, the, you know, there are technical issues in terms of just things being out of focus and just, it, it just feels lazy. And it didn't feel like I was in steady hands, you know? It's like, you know, we've talked about in the past, like, when you start watching a movie by a, an incredibly talented director like a Spielberg or what have you, you know, you get five minutes in and you're just like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Like, this is this is going to be good. And, and, and at the very least, it's going to be interesting. I had the opposite effect in this movie where I was like, is this going to ruin the movie for me? Did you not have that reaction? Well, mine is different than yours, but I kind of want to continue unpacking yours a little bit, if you don't mind, before we kind of shift into mine. Sure. Um, when you got to that ending point of being like, okay, yes, I I had a hard time with that first part, half of the film or whatever it was, but when I view it in its totality and I really kind of focus on the script and not how it's shot, I'm, I am actually loving it. Did you come to that conclusion by the end of the first viewing or did it take until the second viewing for you to love the whole chunk? Um, I loved it it more on the second viewing, but, but I definitely, once the story kicked into gear on first viewing, I was like, Oh no, I'm okay. Okay. This is, this is, this is really fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, cause when we talked about that last, I think it was anyway, the time I remember was the King of comedy and it was a movie that neither of us had seen. And like in the first few minutes we were just like, Oh, of course this is going to be great. It's a Scorsese movie from like when he was at among the height of his powers. I mean, he's never really lost them, but like, you know, he was really clicking then. Uh, so where it's like, that is like being on like a beach in Jamaica be like, Oh, everything's going to be fine. This for you is like being on like the North South Korean border. <laughs> you're like, are we okay here? Are we going to be all right? Like, it seems a little tense guys. Um, but, um, yeah. So, um, so that's interesting. So second viewing, you, you you warmed up to it more and you saw its positives a bit. But I'm guessing on second viewing, you still had a hard time with that first half? Um, less so, for sure. Because you knew it was going to get good. Like, Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the other piece of the direction that was kind of taking me out of it was the way that uh, I felt like he wasn't pulling performances out of the actors. And I think the performances in this movie vary wildly from being really fun and interesting to being outright bad. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I, I think Richard Benjamin is terrible in this movie. And, and, really? and his performance was another piece that was, that was pulling me out of it early. Mm. Okay. Um, I've got, I've got nits. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, and I do too. But they're so they're so unshared between us. It's so funny. Well, okay, well, okay. So tell me your perspective on the direction. Let's let's set Richard yeah. Benjamin aside for a second. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about Herbert Ross's direction? Did this movie immediately pull you in, and what were your overall thoughts? Overall, I really liked components of it, but when I take a step back and I think about the entire piece as one cohesive experience. I'm left feeling like I was a tiny bit disappointed. Okay. Like, like I'm glad I watched it, and I think we got to it, and it got on the board through a fun way, and I'm glad that Ryan Johnson is talking this movie up. And again, I will say, like I mentioned, there were parts of it I really, really liked. Not just individual scenes, but just overall ideas. But I found myself thinking, like, I just was a little bored by it. And a little just kind of like, eh, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, that was kind of my general reaction. Even though there were gems scattered around the soil in this movie that I really dug. And it was really fun to see the glass onion parallels and, and comparisons. And they are all over the place. I just thought of a piece, it left me feeling a little bit underwhelmed. Okay. Um, but... None of that had anything to do with the direction for me. I thought the direction was fine, which is which is fun. Like, um, I like that we have this difference. There were certain shots in the film that I was like, that's an amazing shot. Like, I don't know if it would make my top of the year sort of thing, but I really, really dug it. Hmm. Uh, and, oh, I wanted to ask you this, too. How did you view it? Because I had a Blu-ray, Blu-ray rental. Did you stream? I streamed a version of it. Because I, I wanted to say, even seeing it on Blu-ray, I was not in love with the visuals necessarily either. So I don't think it was like a thing where streaming gave you a reduction in quality necessarily because the Blu-ray was, I was not like, wow, that's an amazing shot of the, the French coast. You know what I mean? I was, I didn't really have that experience with this movie, but there were still some great shots I thought. And I never was distracted by the direction. I never really noticed it, which to me tends to be a strength, but with the way you and I tend to drink in movies, uh, that kind of makes sense to me. I, I, I tend to not really notice a lot of what the camera's doing unless unless it's being extravagant or like having these really opulent sweeping moves. Um, but it sounds like this one, you, you found it uh, kind of frustrating. I, I, again, it blended in for me. I didn't really notice it. The stuff that I really was was kind of struggling with was more in the back half you know it was kind of when the mystery really starts cooking is oh, when i started being like eh, I don't so know you, about you this. were in and then out and i was out and then in yeah it's so funny and and even again in the portion where i was checking out and checking my watch a little bit and thinking like okay there was still there's still great stuff to be had in that stretch of the film where I was kind of checking out a little bit or, or being less engaged. But yeah, that's what I think is so interesting based on when you were talking about it. It's like, dude, I had almost the exact opposite thing where I enjoyed the first half of like trying to get on my feet thinking like, where is this going? And like, and like, where is even the murder? I mean, we have the hit and run incident at the beginning of the film, but then it's kind of quickly breezed past and we know it's going to be important to the story. But it kind of is just like a year later sort of thing. And we're instantly kind of into the film, but I kind of had fun, like trying to detect where this, this murder was going to be. And I do think I had a, a decent amount of baggage with it. Just knowing that it was a whodunit murder mystery. And I was kind of like on the prowl for what the murder was even going to be. Mm-hmm. But then when it started like getting into the church 
and stuff. And we had all the robes and the stuff in the confession booths. Like that's when I started getting a little disengaged and being like, eh, this is just all kind of Scooby Doo-ish. It's a little hmm. like who that's where wearing... I clicked in. And it's so funny, dude. I, and it's going to make for a fun chat. But I, that's when I kind of started like falling out of favor with the movie. I will say as things progressed to its climax and it came to its resolution, I was very impressed with the meticulous structure of everything. And the payoff is worth the journey to get there because you do at the end of the film, even though I have my problems with it, you do step back and you see a really extraordinary completed puzzle in front of your face where you're like, Oh shit. Okay. So everything really did fall into place. I didn't spot any like gaping holes or anything. And it does make you view the entire movie in a different way. It makes you think differently about the title of the film. Like everything changes and that's, that's super cool. And I really did dig that. But when I think about my experience of watching the film, I do, I do kind of have that feeling of being a little underwhelmed. I want to go back to, to where we, either clicked in or clicked out of this movie, which is, right. you know, we said the monastery. I think for me, what I love about this movie is in the, in the sense of its structure. What I love about it is that the movie kind of sets you up to think that the murder mystery is about the, the, the death of Sheila. And you get the resolution to that at like the two third mark, like, like that, that part of the story is resolved and it's resolved in a really, uh, anticlimactic way. But that's, but that resolution happens after the murder, right? Yes. Meaning after the, yeah. So that, so that you're talking about the conversation. I'm talking about where Lee admits to having committed right. the hit and run. And Richard Benjamin kind of coaxes it out of her by setting up the dominoes a, a certain way conversationally. Right. That, right. I'm with you now. I'm with you now. I, I, I really love that this movie gives you that head fake of being like, we're, we're giving you this resolution that feels so, so unsatisfying. And then like two minutes later, you're like, oh, wait, no, no, no. There's, there's an entire different thing going on that I wasn't even paying attention to. Right. And I think that's a really interesting structure for a murder mystery that I haven't seen before where, and I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, you do see that a little bit in Knives Out and and Glass Onion too, to an extent, but I think like what this movie does is it kind of like sets you up to think it's a worse movie than it is. And then it starts pulling out all the stops. And like by the end, when you start to see what actually was going on throughout that whole time and like how Richard Benjamin had like set up all these dominoes to fall. It pays off in such a way that you like, it's like the redemption of, of the fact that you were disappointed by the first mystery's resolution makes the second mystery so much more satisfying. I don't know. I just, I, I, I think that's really fascinating from a structure perspective. I think that's a really good point. I think that and that's really fair to just say like, we think the movie is about, who killed Sheila, who was the hit and run driver. And then we get this murder and it morphs into, well, who did that murder? And then it has this. But even after that murder, you think that that murder itself is, is kind of just incidental to the other. There's, there's a Venn diagram of two murders here. And then there's this middle section 
where you think it's one thing as it's rolling just after the the second murder occurs, but then it 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 departs into this whole second thing that's not. And the second murder that. loops back into the first one by the end. Yeah, in a way, in a yeah. way. it's it's it's. I don't know. I think it's, it's a really, crazy good structure. It it's, is. It's meticulous. But I wanted to ask about the church. Um, sure. The church scene a little bit more because when James Coburn is in the confession booth and people are talking to him, isn't it clear that he's dead then? On when, second like, viewing, I think you can you can see that his eyes are dead. I mean, I didn't catch it on first viewing, but you know, I may have just been not not paying close enough attention. Yeah, because first viewing I was like, oh, he's dead. And the other guy is doing his voice because we had seen Richard Benjamin's character impersonate him before. Yeah, for some reason I didn't make that connection, but you know, that's, so I that had, could be me, me just being dumb. No, no, I because I'm I'm wondering. I was like, I wonder if people, if the movie wants people to sniff that out, or if it's trying to keep it hid. Um, I, I I couldn't tell the movie's intentions there, but I I sniffed it out. I'm not patting myself on the back or anything, but it still made the resolution of Lee talking about the hit and run and how. She jammed the thing in and and blah, blah, blah. It's like still all made that all interesting to me because I had figured out before then that's like, no, he was already dead. So somebody else had already killed him. So I was still kind of enjoying that sort of confessional. And maybe the filmmakers intended it to be a bit of a split audience. Maybe Mm -hmm. they intended for parts of the people watching it to not notice that he was dead already. And maybe they intended for people to catch on to it for a certain amount like I did. And either way, it makes that whole Lee confessional scene interesting because I know that's not the whole story, but I still don't know what else is going on here. Um, what did you think about that whole sequence in general? Like, did you enjoy the stuff in the church with like the who's hooded and who's cloaked and who's who's this and that? Like, I I, I found that stuff kind of kind of lame, for lack of a better word. It's a little well, harsher than I want it to sound, but yeah, I mean, I I just wasn't totally compelled by the whole game concept to begin with. I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting because you know, the, the impetus for writing this movie was that Stephen Sondheim, uh, and his group of friends in New York, uh, he used to put on like these, these elaborate scavenger hunt, uh, you know, mystery things for his friend group. So like, this was a thing that like, and, and apparently like Herbert Ross encouraged him to write this based off of that. So I think, you know, it's kind of inherent in in just the construction of the movie. But, you know, to me, like, you know, it's it's playful and fun. But like like in general, like even this the stuff where they're trying to find the hotel room just didn't totally compel me. Yeah, that stuff I, I found I liked the sort of like the hotel room stuff, because, again, I'm still trying to get my bearings in this movie. And like we have this wealthy producer who's a who's a dick and loves his games, um, and again, it's it's another glass onion parallel. And I was enjoying seeing how clever the game was that he had structured with the Chanel number five and the hand and channel five and closed circuit TV and all this sort of stuff. Like, I was kind of into that, but I was still kind of a little like, but where is this going? So I was, I was a little uneasy as well, but I don't think it was direction like you like your uneasiness with the first half was uh sounds like it was more direction based mine was kind of like but where is this going but that's okay it's okay to be uneasy and be like like why are we watching this um 
but then, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, but the monastery you're saying specifically you weren't into. Yeah. I was like, you know, I was happy that we had kind of gotten arrived to the meat of the story in a lot of ways. And like, we had this new twist that had kind of been hanging over us. Like I had a feeling like, okay, this movie's going to be about more than the hit and run, but still like, I, so I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, and it finally did. And, and there were more shoes to follow, of course. But I don't know. Even though I did dig the part one of the game, like running around in that town with the silver key and whatnot, I still did feel like it took a little too long to get to the monastery stuff. And then when that stuff started happening, I did kind of feel a little bit disinterested in a way. I don't know why. I really don't know yeah. why. But... Again, like, so I, I had issues with this movie, but there were also parts of it that I really, really liked. Hmm. And I will say, as opposed to you, I really dug Richard Benjamin in this. Uh, I thought he was, was fine and solid, and I, I thought he was good. And, but overall, I thought a lot of the performances were great. That was one of my favorite things about these movies, were these, these characters and these actors and the way they kind of embodied them. I really liked it. And it being a star studded cast and everything else. Like I just thought that sort of stuff was super cool. I see what you're saying. And and I think it's totally fair. I don't think that this movie is for everybody. I just was so enamored with the, you know, last third of the movie and how it, it reveals all its secrets that I, I could kind of forgive some of the the less interesting stuff because I, I you know I guess I do agree with you that like n- nothing happening you know when we're in the monastery when we're not you know not when we're flashing back to it when we're flashing back to it I found it all really compelling but when you're in that sequence of them in the monastery it is just kind of like it, it doesn't it it doesn't have a lot of uh, thrust behind it like it's just, it it's not it's not super compelling. Um, and even, you know, just the body falling out is kind of just, it feels a little just like, well, that happened, you know, it's, it, it does, it, there's nothing about it that feels monumental. So yeah, I, I can see why you might've just been like, yeah, I'm a little underwhelmed right now. Yeah. And it was also just like finding the tape recorders and stuff like with how cool the first night of his mystery was with like, you know, the silver key and like, go to this thing and that thing. Um, like that was all like a a fascinating puzzle just from what the characters had to go through perspective. Mm -hmm. But then night two is just like, find the voice. And it's just, there's like, we're in this old church and there's, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I'm asking the movie to do, but for whatever reason, that whole section of the film didn't really resonate with me. I want to ask you more about uh, the origin of this movie. If you, because you mentioned some of the people involved from the, from the writing side, there are names I've heard, but I'm not, super familiar with do you do yeah. you know much about their backgrounds or anything like that for sure i mean uh steven sondheim who i already mentioned is one of the co-writers uh, along with anthony perkins i'll talk about sondheim first sondheim is a legend of of broadway he got his his initial breakout was he wrote the lyrics for west side story um so that was that was his first major major credit um, he actually doesn't like that musical, I think, uh, in, you know, he's kind of talked shit about it, but whatever he, he, uh, he wrote all the lyrics for it and, and it's a great, great musical. He also wrote Into the Woods, Little Night Music, Assassins. He, he's a legend of Broadway and his stories are always pretty intricate and involve 
a lot of characters and and interweaving stories and he has a lot of you know into the woods is the one i'm the most familiar with i was actually in into the woods in high school oh um, really yeah uh that's great and it's it's a phenomenal phenomenal uh musical but yeah he's he's just a legend and and uh you know anyone who knows anything about broadway knows steven sondheim anthony perkins is the co-writer uh perkins was one of the all-time great horror villains he was the main villain in psycho um mm. and yeah he, he you know is is a, a, an acting powerhouse you know he's around for a long long time and uh, yeah this is the only movie that either, either of them ever wrote Sondheim has a couple of other tv credits but no feature film credits I'll just say this now Psycho is a shamer of mine I've actually never seen wow. that movie um big big shamer Huge shamer. It'll get on the board someday for sure. But it's not. it can't be a from the hip. I mean, that movie is just too well known to be a from the hip. But anyway, um, I wonder why it is that they only wrote one film each. Because like, even though I've had, I have some issues with this movie, I still enjoyed it overall. And it was really well constructed. I guess they just did it and wanted to do other shit or something. I mean, they both had other careers. You know, Perkins was a, a full-time actor and Sondheim was a full-time Broadway writer and producer. So, it, you know, it just, I think for them, this was a side project. They had fun with it and they probably just moved on with their life. But I, I want to live in the alternate universe where we got 10 of these from them, you know? Yeah, 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 that's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah, but anyway, so as I mentioned, you know, it, the initial inspiration for the story came from Sondheim putting on these these elaborate murder mysteries. Uh, or not, I guess, I don't know if they were murder mysteries specifically, but they were, you know, big scavenger hunts that had his friends running all over New York City. Um, apparently one of them actually involved uh, them. Fi- there was a, uh, they were all meant to stumble on this record that was skipping and it would constantly be skipping on this one line in a song that said quarter to three and it just kept saying quarter to three quarter to three over like on repeat and that was the clue that they were looking for a hotel uh with a room 245 and so they had to go to room 245 to like like unlock the the mystery um anyway i i just found that really interesting because i think it's like it's pretty clear that the the first stage of the the game that coburn is setting up in this movie is based on that yeah the sterling key 18 or whatever the room number on it yeah um i wanted to ask you have you ever been to a murder mystery i have not i would love to take part in one i think it would be really fun it seems cool. I know that um, some friends of mine put one on in Atlanta several years ago, and I wasn't able to attend, and it sounded like it was a blast. I hope they kind of do it again. Maybe I'll needle them to be like, hey, let's do another murder mystery, but one that I can actually go to. Because it does seem like a fun idea of like everyone dresses up and plays like fancy dancy characters or whatever they want to do and you got to find clues like it sounds like a blast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I've never taken part in, but I, I... I don't know, like I'm craving more uh, real world experiences like that that don't involve looking at a screen. And uh, I think that, and I, I really want to get into Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know anyone who plays Dungeons and Dragons. So if you're listening to this and you're a DM or some shit, let me know. But uh, yeah, so Sondheim and Perkins uh, wrote this movie. It's such a weird pairing of, of uh, two writers. 
but uh, but yeah, they they put this together, and and I think uh, the world's better for it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The world's better for it. I agree. I mentioned earlier that I wasn't a fan of the Richard Benjamin performance, and I want to start moving into the actors because sure. I, you know, there's a one of the cool things about these these murder mystery movies, uh, at least in the ones that I've seen. I, I love the star-studded cast that these movies pull together, and. You know, I love that that it's kind of a core group of a few characters and you just get to know them all really well and, you know, they just get expanded on. It sounded like you were much more into the Richard Benjamin performance than I was. Do you did you like it or did you not like it? I was on the positive side of indifferent towards it, meaning like uh, I thought it was solid, fine. I wasn't enamored I was like oh my god but I thought it did everything it needed to do and I liked having that game of like where have I seen this guy where have I seen this guy and I caved I think I had to look it up and I was like oh catch 22 god damn it Uh, and I loved him in catch 22 and that is maybe a movie that plays to his strengths a little bit more because Mm -hmm. it is so absurd and he's able to really ham it up like when he's calling in the bomb strikes like let's have some nice tight patterns today boys he's just like so over the top um but all that said said i still really did dig him in this and especially when it was revealed that he was kind of the principal menacing factor behind a lot of this stuff especially what happens like post yacht and beyond um it kind of made everything him him being a little sort of kind of stiffer in the beginning work and when he got into full-on intimidation mode like when he's across the scene from james mason and james mason is like really piecing things together i did think he was intimidating and the way he would like sit there and stare was was like kind of frightening like and so i think he pulled that stuff off really well and then i think i really fell in love with him with the commentary track which is Another thing, if I edit this episode, I might tuck it in after the credits or something, just the audio snippet. This guy, it's 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 like decades later, and it's the commentary on the Blu-ray that has Richard Benjamin, Raquel Welsh, and Diane Cannon on it. And Richard Benjamin just ha- seemingly has like no ego and just talks about how he does not smoke cigarettes in real life. He's like he maybe had one once before. And how unnatural he felt with a cigarette in his mouth. And there's this one scene towards the end of the film where it's revealed that him and Raquel Welsh have been having an affair. But she declares that she doesn't find him as interesting now that he's not married or whatever. And she walks off. But he's smoking a cigarette in that scene. And in the commentary, he's just ripping into how bad he looks in the scene. And it's just so fun. And he's just like openly mocking how bad he is with a cigarette in his mouth. And that just made me love the guy. I was like, okay, this guy just does not take himself too seriously. And he's right. He looks bad with a cigarette in his mouth. Uh, so that maybe made me view his performance in a more positive light in a way because I just grew to like the person through the course of the commentary track. So if you said like you were you, you had problems with it, I don't blame you for that. But uh, do you have any – was there anything – specifically that kind of ruffled your feathers about the Richard Benjamin performance? Well, to say something nice about it, I mean, I did, I did agree with you when you said uh, the, the stuff about the menacing qualities towards the end. I think the, the steely looks, he, he sells those. And, and when he's, uh, 
you know, being unveiled as as the murderer. I I I, I think that part of the performance definitely works better for me. But early on and and kind of through the midpoint where he's kind of taking control of the mystery and laying out the the cards and kind of talking about you know his theories um or you know you find out later it's really just him manipulating but but you know in the moment he's theorizing i just didn't find him compelling whatsoever his delivery of of the dialogue it just didn't make it sing for me and it was and it was it was making it harder for me to get wrapped up in it you know like just thinking about Daniel Craig in the Knives Out movies when he's delivering these monologues and kind of expounding on like you know his theories and and you know the various machinations of of what's going on like it's completely utterly compelling like it, it is is just so fucking fun to watch him just do that and I never felt that for a second while Richard Benjamin was laying this stuff out um I think this is stupid but part of it too is I found that disgusting mustache incredibly distracting. <laughs> it's one of the worst on-screen mustaches I've ever seen. Well, uh, what was worse, his mustache or Ian McShane's uh, <laughs> sideburns? Like, well, the sideburns were bad, but McShane is such egregious. a such a fucking you know dime piece of a dude that it's like I'm I'm down to even you know he's he's hot even with the 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 yeah. crazy ass sideburns. <laughs> but uh, Richard Benjamin is just he just like. He's kind of he's scrawny. He he doesn't like com- convey any sort of uh, power or or uh, you know like I I just I just wasn't into it. I I, I can think of like twenty five different actors I would rather see in that role. Yeah, I think I think all of that is fair when you talk about the sort of he's not. Um, like recently, we were talking about Clint Eastwood. And someone who is just physically charismatic on screen. Like the way they move, the way they take up the scene, the way they take up a frame, there's just something electric about, even if they're just standing there, Mm -hmm. them on camera. I agree that Richard Benjamin doesn't really have any of that. Like at no point when he's like in a shot, am am I like, just look at that guy. Like I don't know, he's just he is yeah. a little kind of. He just doesn't uh, hold yeah. your your gaze. Like like yeah. If there's I think that's fair. if there's like seven people on screen, he's the last one I'm looking at in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 fair, and maybe that's good. Like if we're if we're kind of hoping if the if the creators are hoping for us not to suspect him. I mean, I guess, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. like you want the the central figure of your movie to for be sure. to be a point of interest. It would be charismatic, at, at least. And I do find uh, points, of, points of his performance charismatic. But I agree with you. There, there isn't anything, like, innately electrifying about yeah. him as a performer, at least in this. Well, yeah, um, and I, I, and I like him in Catch-22. So I don't want to say, uh, like, yeah. I'm knocking Richard Benjamin in general. I don't have enough of a, a basis for him. You know, another movie that he's in that we've tossed around as a potential board addition uh, at some point is Westworld. And mm. that came out the same year as this. And he's the, I, I want to say he's the main character of that. Yeah, um, I think he is. So I'd be, I'd be interested to see if I like that performance more, but yeah, yeah it just, he just didn't grab me. And I, and I think, like I said, like it, it's, that's compounded by the fact that pretty much everyone else in this movie does grab me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting point. I wanted to circle back to one thing when you're talking about, with Richard Benjamin when he's laying out the cards mm-hmm. and he's, as we know, upon resolution of the movie, this is all part of his, his game and his, his scheme. 
with that knowledge upon the movie's conclusion, does that aid in your opinion of that scene of being like, oh, the character is putting on a performance. So it's okay if it seems a little off note or does it, is it too off note for it to fall into that category? I don't even know if off note is the way to put it because it's, it's, I don't think there's enough in the performance for me to, to see that as him putting on a performance like I like I don't mm. he being the character not not Richard Benjamin like I, I think yeah. there's not enough layers to what he's doing as an actor to make me realize in hindsight like oh that was the character performing you know like it's just it's just he's so bland that like it never reads to me as this person has too like it is two-faced in that way yeah, I kind of did. I did view it as he was two faced, like like in that within the performance, like thinking of when he's supposedly in terms of what he's trying to project, like arriving to the conclusion that it was Lee who did the hit and run. And then he like kind of just pitters out and is like, oh, well, this isn't going to hold up in the court. What's the point? Let's bail. Like, I feel like he's. He's laying it on too thick there in a good way, like in a way that is like the character putting on a performance. And and so I did see those elements there. And you mentioned, I mean, we've been mentioning the glass onion a ton, a ton in this, and it makes total sense. It reminded me of something, and I'll speak vaguely to avoid glass onion spoilers, but there's something in the glass onion where when I was watching it for the first time, I was thinking early on in the film, like, ah, there's something a little off about Daniel Craig's performance, but I'm still digging it. Still love seeing him. And then there's this illuminating thing. It's like, oh my God, yes, that was intentional. Mm -hmm. I was getting a little bit of those vibes um, with the Richard Benjamin in that scene, but I think it was pushed maybe a little too far. Whereas Daniel's, Daniel Craig's was like so subtle that I was like, I think there's something off with him here, but I can't put my finger on it. And I actually thought it was a performance failure. And then I grew to find out through the course of the film that it's actually a virtuoso performance. It's the exact right amount of wrong. Right. Uh, but um, this one, I think, was a little too wrong and a little too heavy in that scene for me. Yeah. I See, I, I, I almost think of it as the opposite, where it's like too light. And, and I don't... Because there's no... Um, the, the performance is just not modulated to to where I can pick up on those differences. To me, it's just, he's just a weird puzzle-solving guy and, like, this is just kind of what he does. And, like, I don't, like, I don't know. It just, it, it doesn't read to me. It doesn't read the same way. Like, like Daniel Craig is is just knocking it out of the park and I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about in that movie because it's, it's 100% what he's doing. Um I don't feel the performance within the performance in, in Richard Benjamin. Let's move on though. I, I want to talk about some actors that we did that I, I did really like. James Coburn is so much fucking fun in this movie. Oh my God. Talk about charismatic on camera. Oh, such a good dick. Like what an asshole this guy is. And he's got this big toothy smile that is just like, I don't know. He is, he looks, sounds, and acts perfectly for this character. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I, th I think there's going to be two characters I think of if I'm reflecting on this movie in like three or four years, it crosses my mind. Shots of like him with the megaphone 
on the speedboat, like saying that who they're looking for tonight and whatever. And when he's like taking the boat down and delivering a speech as the dinghy's being loaded into the water, like these are the scenes that I think are going to pop up. You know, he is just fucking awesome in this movie. I love his little moments where he's getting frustrated, like that elements of like what he set up aren't working the way he wants them to. And it's just like the, the utter confidence and I I don't know. I just like, I, I love all the little quirks of this character. He's so satisfied with himself. Like he's so pleased with himself. And then when something goes wrong, it's like devastating. And he's just like, Oh no, Oh God. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just, I love him just like, like, like the bits where he's like, sh- like shooing people away. He's like, no, 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 get out of here. Somebody else has to enjoy this now. Get the fuck out of here. Like, like yeah. I love all those little touches. It's great. Yeah. And also just how like, you know, these feeders are just swarming around him constantly. These people who are coming to him for, for money or fame or things. And it just, it seems so obvious through the character that he's just been putting up with this shit for like decades. Mm -hmm. And he's just so tired of these people coming to him for things. And and now it seems like his principal joy in life is just fucking with these people yeah, and like turning around on them and just like inviting them to his yacht for a week in France, which nobody, even if they weren't desperate for work, no one's turning that down. And then they just arrive and he just starts mocking them. <laughs> like, like when he takes that photo of them underneath the Sheila thingy, what does he say? It's like there's six desperate people or something like that or had bends. He like he just he's just insulting them all week. It's so Constantly. funny. And they all need something from him. So they're all just taking it willingly. Yeah. And then and he's like just, I think that's what I kind of love about this movie in general is everyone fucking despises each other. Like mm-hmm. none of these people like each other. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, even, I guess, Raquel Welch and, and Richard Benjamin, even by the end of it, even though they're having the affair, like, they still end up probably not having good feelings towards each other. So I think that's a good point. Yeah. Like, everyone is just like... Everyone's it, using like, each other for things and just, yeah. like, manipulating each other and, like, everyone's yeah, backstabbing like, each other. It's just, like, like it, it's so, like, it's so laced with just, just this undercurrent of, of just revulsion towards each other yeah. it's great i think you're right and i hadn't thought of it that way but that's how everyone views each other in this film it's just a means to an end yeah yeah it's all manipulation top yeah. to bottom yeah that's a good point um but no i i think coburn is definitely the highlight of this movie for me um he's he's quirky and amazing um you must have been sad to see him go then because he goes probably two-thirds into the movie and you were probably like, oh, unless we get flashbacks, no more. I mean, no more I kind work. of assumed he was going to be the, the victim. That that wasn't totally surprising to me. But yeah, I was definitely missing his presence in the back half. But that being said, once he's gone, that kind of unlocks James Mason to, to yes. go off. And, well you know, look, like Mason is doing what he, he typically does. Like if anyone has seen the verdict, like that's he's 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 doing much the same thing in that movie that he is in this in terms of just bringing this gravitas and this, you know, the the way he delivers these, these you know, monologues just kind of uh, un, like breaking things down is, is really compelling to watch. Um, 
so look, I don't I don't think he's doing anything revolutionary with his performance, but when he does get to take the reins, it really is a ton of fun. Oh my god, it's just like get out of his way. He has this calm sedative English voice, mm-hmm. like he's just this relaxed English voice. He he seems unflappable. He has this even keel way of speaking and he's just laying out the facts of things as he's piecing it all together and it seems almost like stream of consciousness like this character like is is figuring it out in the moment in a way Mm -hmm. and yeah you're right he he really kind of dominates the last 20 minutes of the movie it just fucking owns it and it's just like i mean it's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to ask an actor to do too like to like hey explain in 10 minutes or less what's been going on for the past two hours, but be interesting while you do it. And, you know, don't be a bore. And that's obviously a real challenge of the writing too, but he just delivers all that dialogue so well. And, and, and it is for me a tiny bit eye rolly and it's an, it's kind of a necessary ingredient in whodunits. You need to have a scene where some character has an epiphany and explains everything to the audience. Like it's just, it's a necessary ingredient. You know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And this one for me felt a little heavy handed, but it was nothing to do with the performance. Like the performance was was pitch perfect, but it was just very and this and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I felt I couldn't feel more the opposite because like that that's where I just loved the movie. I, I I think part of it is the editing. I think the editing is super strong in the in that section where it's kind of cutting back to oh, yeah. little snippets to kind of like highlight like this is what you saw but you didn't see kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's true. I really love that, and and I think like Mason's monologue around that is is really interesting in that like he's kind of piecing it together as he talks through it, and I, and I really I really like the way he delivers that whole monologue. Yeah. I think that's fair. That's fair. And he, whenever I see him, I think of the verdict, as you mentioned, like Mm -hmm. he's fucking great in that. And I agree with you. He's not necessarily doing something extraordinarily different here, but he is one of those magnetic people. Like we Mm -hmm. were kind of throwing a little bit of shade on Richard Benjamin for maybe not having some of those innate magical qualities uh, like he does. You know what I mean? I I, I love the performance. And I I think what's also interesting just on a character level is that, this movie at the end is asking you to be on the side of a child molester. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) It's insane. It's insane how few people get uh, punished in this movie (laughs) to the extent that they should. And, and James Mason is at the top or not, maybe not at the top of the list, but he's hovering at the top of the list. Like he's, he's, he's one B or whatever it is. Yeah. He snakes his way out of it. Like at the end, like, like, I, and and you're you're left with this feeling of like ah yes they they got the bad guy oh wait <laughs> can we just talk about a couple like I mean we haven't really dove too much into this we're kind of cracking ourselves up so we talk about it so maybe it's just apparent but this movie is really funny and there are some really good straight up gags in this movie and I'm thinking of when James Mason is on the the night of the first game and he's at the hotel trying to compare keys to each other mm-hmm. and like he's behind the front desk and this touristy couple comes in and it is something like 
I didn't see that hooker last night on that corner with that silver key. And he just whips around and goes, which corner was that? Like, like, like the gay just inquiring about, hey, where's this prostitute you're talking about? It's just a great, like, little joke. And I'm like, fuck, dude, this movie is really funny. Dude, Sondheim is is that kind of writer. Like, there's a, there's a, um, like a dark comedy to almost all of his Broadway plays uh, or Broadway shows. Um, and, and yeah, again, go, go watch into the woods and, and like, it's, it is darkly funny. Mm. Well, thinking too about more that of like James Mason cracking me up in this movie because he's never a guy and I envisioned could be funny. And obviously like we're, we're saying, I don't have a ton of experience with him, but I know him from the verdict before seeing this. And he just does not seem like a funny person. But this movie, I think, used his like proper British stiffness in a way that really worked well. And I'm thinking of that scene where Richard Benjamin is trying to kill James Mason, trying with to strangle puppets. him with those with creepy puppets <laughs> on his hands. That was a spooky shot, by the way, when it cuts to the Richard Benjamin revealing the puppets. Oh, see, I like, laughed at that. I was like, this is ridiculous. Oh, dude, that 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 got me. I was like, oh, that's like, that was a little bit of a jump scare there. So the the room is destroyed. James Mason is on hands and knees panting. And Diane Cannon like comes up the stairs and is just like, what's going on here? <laughs> James Mason is just like, a bit of a disagreement. And he's like panting. And like the room is destroyed. And he claims that it was about like the film. And then, of course, we find out that she has heard this commotion and exactly what they've been talking about. But that just cracked me up. I was like, that is just so damn funny. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff with Diane Cannon is pretty funny. We should probably talk about her real quick. Hell um, yeah, dude. I mean, this is the first performance of hers I've ever seen. And I found her just electric in this. I think she's so fun. Dude, I think if I was forced to choose, I think she stole the movie from me. It was it was between her and Coburn and I, when I think about it, she's like, she was just awesome in this. She's so damn funny. She's like kind of an airhead ditz. She's really obnoxious. She's a sort of like, I guess she was loosely based on a real agent at the time. But she's just, I, and I, I, like you, have not seen her in anything that I'm aware of. And I was just like, who is wow. this? She is incredible. I am, I'm on IMDb right now. And I just pulled up her filmography just to see if there was anything else that I recognized. And I had completely forgotten. I watched a movie last year that involves both her and James Mason, and they're both great in it. Mm. Have you ever seen Heaven Can Wait, the Warren Beatty movie? I, no, I've seen it at Videodrome because there's a Warren Beatty section. Yeah. Oh, no, and it was written by Elaine May, right? It's in the Elaine Correct. May section. Correct. Yes, it's, yes, it's, yes. Uh, and it's directed by Beatty and, and co-written by Beatty as well. Um but yeah, that it's it's not my favorite movie ever. I thought it was good, not great. But Diane Cannon plays this. Um, I'm trying to remember her relation, but she's like romantically involved with Charles Grodin in it, and mm. they are hilarious together. Good God, I could see that working so fucking well because Grodin often has that sort of slightly deadpan energy, and if and if. If Vlasta Sheila is like any sort of indication of Diane Cannon's sort of comedic rhythms, mm -hmm. I could see them meshing really well because in a lot of ways they're really different. If I remember correctly, the two of them play these kind of finagling uh, rich people that are trying to get richer kind of thing. Um, and they, 
I want to say that they were they're like cuz like the whole premise of the the movie is that uh Warren Beatty is playing this uh quarterback who finally is going to get his big break and he's going to start in the Super Bowl and then he dies tragically like on on his way home uh right after he gets the 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 job and um then he comes he he goes up to heaven meets James Mason who's like an angel and gets sent back down into the body of like this rich dying guy and i guess i think the the premise is that Charles Grodin and Diane Cannon killed this guy and then you know Beatty goes into this guy's body and uh so they're just like shocked that this guy's alive cuz they they've already tried to murder this person <laughs> like anyway yeah wor- well worth a watch yeah, but she is just like I think that first scene when we m- meet her in this movie, The Last of Sheila, like she's just on the phone and so it's just good. like I'm just like I I think I love this performer. She's like such an asshole in that scene too, and she's just like scratching the receiver, pretending that there's static. She's just playing this game. She's dialed, and, man. Yeah, and doesn't she say something to her female coworker like try to sound like a woman? Yeah, <laughs> like she just like throws this like vicious insult out of nowhere, and I guess Diane Cannon put on like twenty pounds for the role. She said that she looks um, gorgeous. She looks incredible, which I was I was shocked to find that out in the commentary. She's like, yeah, I wanted to look more like I think the name of the the Hollywood person she was emulating was Susie something. I can't, I could be remembering that wrong, but it was some sort of famous agent out there and it was her agent as well. And so she wanted to bulk up for the role. And my God, like you said, she looks absolutely great. And the agent's name is Sue Mangers, by the way. And she, she at one point represented both Richard Benjamin and uh, Diane Cannon. And actually uh, from what I read, they initially offered the role to her uh, Sue Mangers, and then Sue Mangers said, "No, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not an actor," and and re- recommended Diane Cannon instead. Mm-hmm. And when she like, if you'll see, there's a scene where her and Raquel Welsh and Lee are like kind of lounging in the back of the boat together. It's right before Diane Cannon almost gets sucked down by the propeller, and she's laying there, and across her belly is like a golden tassel, mm-hmm. and she said in the commentary that that was her weight line, that yeah. like she she didn't want to go beyond that. But she wanted to be to that fill level to to kind of more accurately embody the characters, what she was saying. But God, she was great. And how about when she gets pulled out of the water and she's like hysterical and like kind of clashing into that glass? Like that's an example of a shot that I really dug in this movie. Like when she's like falling into the glass and the camera's just shooting her straight on from the other side of the glass. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's just a cool shot, man. Like I just like that. It stood out to me, but I I, I don't. I don't love that shot composition. I think what what works in that is her performance. I think she nails the hysteria of that sequence. Yeah, where she's like laughing and is like beside herself and then freaks out and like yeah, it's it's yeah, I think it's really well done. Um, but yeah, I, I want to watch more uh, Diane Cannon after this. Me too. Me too. I I wouldn't quite say Big Dog because it's one performance. But like she'll be bouncing around in my head. When She's I'm carrying some because, big dog energy for sure. Yeah, like big dog energy indeed. And she's just B-D-E. like, I. Not only am I gonna be like, <laughs> not only am I gonna be on the lookout for her. I'm thinking about actively pursuing some of her her roles and seeing them because like I was really floored by her on this, and and I'm excited to see more. I feel like we have to talk about Ian McShane. We do. We just we just have to. Like I thought about him a lot this week. <laughs> just just seeing the last of Sheila you had, and you had McShane on the brain. 
I had McShane on the brain big time, dude. And I think he might be like the United Kingdom's big dog. Like he might be like Jason Robards level. He also has some big BDE. Oh, huge big dog energy, dude. Massive. He is one of my favorite actors of all time. I, I don't really know what it is about him. Whatever he's doing, I, I like everything about it. And I really know him. We kind of talked about this a little bit with Jeff Bridges last week. But I kind of know him as like an older guy. Like when sure. I think Ian McShane, I think of Deadwood. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think of his John voice Wick. in Cup. John Wick, I think of his voice in Kung Fu Panda, and I think of his almost cameo performance in Game of Thrones. And I just like, that's the age I envision him as. Well, yeah, I that, I mean, never, that's, that's our lifetime, yeah. Yeah. I had never seen him as a younger actor. And when I saw his name pop up in the opening credits, I got so excited. And I was like, oh my God, young, young Ian McShane. I cannot wait to see. And then when he shows up with... Raquel Welsh kind of under his arm or he's under her arm, however you want to say it. Don't really know about the power dynamics in that relationship. But um, I was like, is that him? And I had to like kind of like, like, like really dial in and be like, that is him. I almost couldn't recognize him. I mean, it's in the eyes, you know, you could tell it's him. But overall, I would say in this particular performance, I thought he was really solid, really good, not necessarily like amazing. He doesn't really have a ton to do. Like his yeah. character is kind of like a, a little bit of a wallflower. <laughs> he does have some really nice moments from a performance perspective when he's pushing back against Richard Benjamin's theories and he's kind of like jousting with him when they're doing all the card reveal stuff. Um, he really has some nice moments in there, but other than that, he doesn't have a ton to do with the character, but I thought still was great to see him and was cool seeing him younger, but I just I love Ian McShane. How do you feel about him generally? Oh, I love Ian McShane. I mean, like like you said, like my general understanding of him comes from his later years here, but he just conveys so much gravitas and cool. Um, he's absolutely a big dog, like in terms of just like what he, what the energy he brings into a movie. He's, he's that kind of actor, you know, call cool, calm, collected also like with a tinge of potential violence there. And I, I think he's doing a lot of that in this movie. Like this is like, this feels like an early precursor to that kind of, you know, dead Woody type role to me. It's it you know he doesn't have a lot to work with but I think he's doing a lot with the bit that he gets. Very serious question for you here. Who is the bigger dog from the United Kingdom? Is it Ian McShane or is it Michael Caine? I think in terms of career and the like just the I think it, the Nolan movies put McCain uh, McCain (laughs) the Nolan movies put Kane over the edge for me just because he like he kind of just embodies like English badass in every one of those movies that he does with Christopher Nolan and and I think like so in that way he's like a he's like a totem of English masculinity you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but but I think at the same time McCain God I keep doing that 
it's the, Leave it it's in. The, it's it's the maverick of the Senate has thrown off your fucking his name combo. Uh, despite disagreeing with his politics, McCain is also a big dog. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He is good. Seemed like a good person. Yeah, uh, but uh, but no, McShane is definitely in that in that conversation for sure. Yeah, yeah, he is and. And also, well, just, hold on. We, we're leaving oh, yeah. out Albert Finney. He's another one of those English bulldog badasses. I, see, I got to see Albert Finney when he's young. Um, like, there's something about him that's like, oh, he's like grandfatherly and charming, and that kind of is is an amazing talent to have, but it's not necessarily big dogish. Oh, see, like, I think he commands some big dog energy in in Aaron Brockovich, which is the only Finney performance we've covered on the show. He does a little in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, I think, which is a movie yeah. that I absolutely love and I think is criminally underseen. Miller's Crossing, ultimate big dog energy. That's maybe, maybe. But, I mean, I also want to see a young Michael Caine performance, by the way. I don't know if I ever really have. I think he did the original, um, what's that movie? The Italian Job. I think he did, like, he the did. 70s version of The Italian Job. But I've, I've really wanted to see, like, oh, because I've heard... That he's almost like the uh, the United Kingdom's Clint Eastwood. He is. That he's like yeah. this like this cool badass who used to be this like kind of rogue character in the seventies, and then he's just aged super well. And I did see this movie Harry Brown that mm-hmm. came out maybe ten years ago. That's tapping like that. into that for sure. Yeah. So like um, I don't know. I'm just I'm realizing it's like oh shit. I have I have no relation with any of that aspect of his career really. So this I've might been be one- a from the hip one. It could be. I am what about, very what about, excited. What about this but, as an idea? Get Carter is is a classic Michael Caine big dog performance. And I never seen it? I've never seen it. I really want to watch it. That's one that we should consider. What year did it come out? 1971. Okay, okay. Um, I'm I just going to send you a picture. The- I'm going to send you a picture in the chat. And if this doesn't sell you on the potential <laughs> for, even if it's not this week, I, I don't know what yeah. will. Yeah, all right. I'm clicking it now. Clicking the link now. This is a live reaction time, folks. Oh, my God. Right? Can we make that the thumbnail for the show for this week? Because <laughs> people have to see what we're talking about, even though it has nothing to do with The Last of Sheila. We no, can, we can link confusion. to the picture in the show notes. Yes, I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna, I'll clip this, to, uh, this URL into our, our document ha- here. We have to link that picture. That is <laughs> the coolest thing I think I've ever fucking seen. Okay. All right. So that's definitely a contender. We'll get there in due time. But, um, but yeah, to circle back to Ian McShane, I'm just glad you love him too. And, and, um, I don't know. I just, for some reason, I didn't know he was acting this young. I thought he was just like, like, uh, I don't know. Just well, he, he strikes me as, age. well, he strikes me as kind of one of those English theater actors. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, I, I kind of assumed, I think just from the fact that I only was familiar with his, um, performances at an older age. I kind of assumed that he was just like a steady theater actor for a long time and just was, you know, one of those kind of revered uh, within the acting community type guys for a long time till he got his like big break in, in Deadwood or whatever. Not big break. I mean, obviously he was a big deal anyway, but he, but that's the, the idea I had in my head. Um, but no, I mean, he was clearly like a working actor. He He's, he's done a lot of shit. And um, it won't be this week, but... Um... I think I might be on the prowl for a younger Ian McShane performance that he's leading. Mm. And if it's something that we can track down easily, I'd like to consider putting that on the board just because I really do love him as an actor and um, I'd like to see more of his stuff. So for sure, uh, 
like we said, nothing revolutionary in this film necessarily, but just great to see him. Just really, really good to see him. Just as a side note, I mean, I, I feel it is a show that I have tried to start multiple times. I've mentioned that this is a problem for me with other shows where I'll like watch the first episode like four times and just never pursue beyond that of, of like a show. Deadwood is one of those for me. I don't know why. I, it's like, a tough show, man. I love it's, him in that first episode, which is the only thing I've watched of it. But I haven't been compelled to watch further. And I, I love Western shit. I don't know why I haven't. Yeah, and you like Timothy Oliphant too. Right? I do. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll, I mean, everyone in that show is great. I. It took me forever to get into Deadwood. I started it maybe eight years ago, something like that, and I was just like, "What? This is supposed to be one of the." stones that built the house of hbo like I, I don't know and i just like bailed immediately and then maybe four years ago i tried it again and i was watching it alongside friend of the show graham waldrip and his wife alexa and like we were kind of talking about it a lot and i really got sucked into it so then when the movie came out uh i think that was during the pandemic i want mm-hmm. to say um i was very excited about that because i'd seen the show uh, and it's it is wonderful. It's it's a tough show to get into because it is very Shakespearean in its dialogue, and it's it's almost hard for me to track. I often have described to people in the past where I almost have to like look at the actors' faces to try to figure out what's being said because it's like I was like, ooh, I think he was just insulted because he just made a face, and it's like it's like the dialogue is so dense and so hmm. well done. Okay. Um, but once you once I settled into the groove of the show, I became obsessed with it, and I I grew to love it. This might be the the final spur Straw? I needed to, yeah. to. Nice spur, nice Western reference. Right? I love it. Yeah, I was pretty great. pleased with that one. Mm-hmm. We should all we should also mention his little performance in Game of Thrones is fucking amazing. Yes, dude. I think it's. I think honestly, I mean, this is from the hip in honor of this episode. Like the statement is from the hip. It might be one of my favorite cameos of all time. Like he is just, he just steps in for one episode and just kills it and then just walks off and just like, God damn, that guy is fucking electric, dude. He is unreal. Mm-hmm. Anyway, McShane's a badass. Um, is there anyone else cast wise you wanted to kind of give a little hat tip shout out to specifically? Well, I mean, it's a small cast. I think we should mention everybody. I think Joan Hackett as Lee is is interesting. Um, I don't I don't love the performance, but it's more just because I think she kind of gets swallowed up by the BDE going on with everyone yep. around her. With everybody else, yep. yep. Um, which, you know, to be fair to, to Richard Benjamin may also be part of why I don't like his performance is just like, you know, the Coburn, Mason, Cannon McShane of it all is just like sucking the energy in the room. This is too much to overcome. (laughs) What can you do in the face of such reckless big dick energy? With gravity, with with a gravitational pull of those kind of characters, it's it's really hard to stand out. With those big dogs coming in, like Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, but I still I still really like Joan Hackett. I think I I like watching her unravel in this movie. I think she does a really good job of, you know the the. And and it's something that I actually I meant to touch on with the writing of it, but the way that all of the skeletons in the closet for all of these characters are hinted at, like in the early parts of the movie, at, mm-hmm. you know, at, and mm-hmm. you kind of like get to see them come come unglued in that way. Um, I think Lee has 
the most uh she has the biggest arc of of those kind of things in the movie where you start the movie with her drinking ginger ale and then you watch her slowly you know like fall prey to her alcoholism as as that comes out of the out of the woodwork you know i i just think like i think she does a really good job with that i think that her her speech where she confesses to killing Sheila by accident and, you know, that it was a direct result of her alcoholism. Um, I think it's, 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 there's a tragedy in it that I think she does a really good job of conveying. I mean, I think she's the most tragic character in the film. Like, I mean, like she, she has this year of intense guilt from killing Sheila with an accidental hit and run. And then, well, the run wasn't accidental. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. But then, on top of that, on her conscience, she has the belief that she killed James Coburn's character, which we know eventually that she didn't. Right. Um, so she believes that, and then it drives her to despair. And then her husband fucking kills her. It's just yeah. like Jesus Christ. Like she really, she really gets put through the ringer, dude. I don't. I don't know if it's top brute category, but she definitely no. gets brutalized Dude, in this movie. If there, if we ever did a top brute for like character arcs, like <laughs> she is in the running for like holy hell, that is a top brute. She really gets a bad run of it in this movie. Yeah, for sure. I w- I was gonna say it's her and Jennifer Jason Lee in in Hateful Eight, but hers yeah. is more of a visceral, you know, pain. Yeah, hers is a, a year of sorrow topped off with this terrible. Yeah, one's internal, display. one's external. Yeah, the other is soup, elbowed, hung, <laughs> shot, like <laughs> everything under the sun. Oh man! Uh, but yeah, you. So you yeah. liked the Joan Hackett performance in this? Thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think she was fine. Like, uh, kind of like, just like you said, a little bit similar to my reaction to the Richard Benjamin thing. Like, serviceable, good. I never thought she was like. I was like, where did that come from? Like, she was always on point, but I was not enamored either. I think that's fair. Um, lastly, in terms of the the core cast, actually, I mean, I think it's the only other speaking role outside of the ones that we've talked about. Um, it's a pretty pretty contained film in that way. Raquel Welch, who is a you know famous beauty of Hollywood from this era, um, plays Alice in this movie, and apparently she was a pain in the ass on set by all accounts. Uh, oh, really? I didn't yeah. hear that. Yeah, no, I, I I heard, actually, I'll, I'll just pull up the quote. James Mason just tore her to shreds. Um, let me see. Ah, where did I see that? Oh, my God. What? Raquel Welsh died two hours ago. Jesus, are you serious? Yes, I just, I just switched over to see what other film she was in. Oh, my God. And at time of recording, it's Wednesday the 15th. She just passed away. Wow, you are you are correct. That's crazy. Holy shit. The board works in mysterious ways. Wow. Jeez, rest in peace, Raquel Welch. Rest in Welsh. peace, Raquel Welch. I kind of feel bad bringing up this part yeah. of it now, but... Uh, well, wonderful people can be difficult. That's Yeah, funny. of course. But I'm just still in shock at just the timing of this all sorry i'm a little like we can cut that out knocked i'm a little knocked (laughs) out of the zone no we keep it in seems a little like i'm cutting her at the knees no no dude that's what james mason said it doesn't mean it's true um but um but anyway uh still just shocking to read this Um, that's crazy yeah that's that is does it say what happened i mean she was 82 yeah i I haven't seen a, a reason yet um 
Like TMZ always gives. Uh, the it says right she away. died after a brief illness. So yeah, it was, oh. it, it was just health issues. It seems like from yeah. old age. It's really sad. Yeah, it's it is very sad. Um, because I was gonna say like my 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 understanding of Raquel Welsh is it's really boiled down in some strange way, and maybe it's not strange for for people of our age to Shawshank Redemption. Like that's how I got introduced to Raquel Welsh is for those who maybe aren't obsessed with that film. Like I am, she is the final poster that Andy Dufresne uses uh spoiler alert for Shawshank Redemption um, to God cover help the t- you. If you're being spoiled yeah. on that movie right now, that's true. That's true. Good Lord. Has anyone our age not seen that film? What are you doing? Um, but Andy Dufresne uses her iconic movie poster of her in the sort of tattered bikini from, I think it's, I always thought it was like a Planet of the Apes film, but I don't actually know what it's attached to. Um, He was using that to cover his escape hole that he was tunneling. So, but Morgan Freeman gives her a shout out in the voiceover of that film where he's like, by 1960, blah, 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 it was lovely Raquel. So that's how I always got to know who Raquel Welch was. But I'd actually never seen her in a movie before this Last of Sheila, I think. Yeah, I don't think I had either. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the name. She's a stunningly gorgeous human being. Dude, she uh, just, really is. Holy shit. Like, just like... I mean, it's even if you're only casting her for her beauty, like that is enough in terms of just what she's bringing to the film. Yeah, she kind of has it all in terms of like glamour on screen. And and I'm not someone who really ranks uh, physical beauty that highly in terms of whether or not I like an actor. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's just not that important to me. But I think of certain people and I think of... Um, Someone like Claudia Cardinale in Once Upon a Time in the West, if you remember her performance, that she's just like so stunningly beautiful. It's just like, holy shit. And Raquel Welch in this movie, The Last of Sheila, has some of that going on where it's just like, God damn. Like, I can't help myself to just say she is so beautiful. Like, yeah. you just can't not see it. Like, and it's and yes, she's got like an incredible body that is shown off in this film a little bit with the bikini and stuff, but her facial structure is really stunning too. And it's just like her hair, her hair, every, it's like, who is this person? She was like, she seems like beamed down from like another. She seems, she seems crafted. She has like the cheekbones of like a German car. I'm like, what the (laughs) fuck is going on? So like Volkswagen. Yeah. Like, I mean the jaw bones really, but it's like, she has like luxury car lines on her face. I'm just like, this is just crazy. Yeah. So anyway, um, and honestly, I think her performance is good. And I think she was really well cast. If she was this sort of at the time, superstar kind of sex symbol icon, she must've had a lot of fun kind of playing a version of that. But being able to maybe take it a little more seriously and not just be the babe in the movie, but um, I mean, she is that. But she's 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 toying with more here, and I do think of that scene where she's talking to Richard Ben Benjamin, and Richard Benjamin is like poorly smoking that cigarette because he doesn't know how to do it, and she's just kind of she's just letting him down. Like she's really good in that scene. Yeah. Like I I think she's she's great in a lot of these scenes, but. Rest in peace, Raquel Welsh, man. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I think as a performance, it doesn't blow me away, but it doesn't it doesn't detract from the movie at any point. I, there was no point where I was like, 
this is a terrible actor and I wish there was someone else in this role. I think, you know, her job in this movie is to be the movie star of the bunch. And I think she does a really good job of it. Yeah. I'm trying to think of someone who um, is like, it's really that they're just a pretty face. And I'm trying not to be too insulting, but I'm trying to, I'm thinking of like people, people like um, Jessica Alba and maybe like Megan Fox. Like, sure. There's nothing wrong with them. But it seems to me my feeling of them was their their hotness and their beauty was more the reason they sure. were getting they roles. Can, they can deliver a serviceable performance, but their physical yeah. presence is more what they're doing. Yeah, it's how it, amazingly they look is the reason they're getting parts. And I'm sure that was true for Raquel Welsh for plenty of performances. But I didn't see that here. I didn't get that vibe. I was like, oh, no, she's not just a pretty face. Like She's, she's really solid in this. Rest in peace, Raquel crazy man crazy well are there any other final notes you want to wrap up on here um i just have one thing i guess kind of that wrapped up my feelings of the movie in general was like thinking of those scenes with raquel welsh where the camera's just on her and we're supposed to not know who she's talking to and her performance in there is really strong but like there's just that gloved hand offering her a cigarette and it's just this whole like, Ooh, whose glove is that? Like that's the sort of stuff that didn't really work for me. And again, like I said, the hoods in the monastery and like, Oh, who do you think that is? It's just kind of like, eh, but I don't know if one of the reasons is because it's that sort of thing has been done so many times since that maybe it wasn't played out then, but it has since become that way. I'm not really sure, but I just wanted to give a shout out to those scenes Whereas, like, who do you think that is? It was just kind of like, eh. Or like when, when the camera is in, like, the POV talking to Raquel Welch in those two scenes. Exactly. Or yeah. when, like, uh, someone's POV walking through the bowels of the ship. Who do you think it is? Who's turning the engine on? And well, that's just like, see, that's the kind of shit I'm talking about. That's bad direction. Yeah, that that is kind of like, eh. I don't know if we need that. And also, let's let's not forget that not only is James Mason uh, a child molester in this film, he also attempted murder at one point too. So, well, like, and he lets Richard Benjamin get off with the crime in in uh, return for getting uh, a chance to make a movie. Yeah, with rewrites. God, what a piece of shit. But yeah, no, that that's kind of it for me. Like, I feel like I I su- semi successfully spoke my mind on this. I'm okay. glad I saw it. I'm happy it got on the board, um, and I'm glad that Ryan Johnson is kind of shining a light on this film. Uh, but I was not over the moon about it, but there were performances and things about it that I loved, and I do like this formula. I do like that it's coming back as well, where you have like, hey, let's get an all-star cast. Let's bottle them up in a room and let's do a whodunit, or bottle them up on a yacht or whatever, on an island, whatever. Yeah. Let's do a whodunit. It's really it's fun. Just, it's a fun structure, and... This definitely is in that vein. Great, great cast, you know, thrown together. And and thinking, too, of where these people were at in their careers. Pretty much everyone on the top billing here is a star to some mm-hmm. degree. So I think it's a great formula, and it's cool to see one of the, not necessarily OGs of that, but one that had a big influence on Ryan Johnson. So I'm glad we hit it. Do you have any sort of kind of bullet-pointy stuff you wanted to, to round out with? I had a few things. I feel like I... I skipped over some things that I meant to bring up earlier. So just to, to loop back to some stuff. Um, first of all, I wanted to mention that in Glass Onion, Stephen Sondheim actually makes an appearance. Um, he is one of the three people that 
Daniel Craig is playing Among Us with in the bathtub. Oh, so it's cool. him. Yeah, it's it's Stephen Sondheim, Angela Lansbury from Murder She Wrote, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that he's playing the game with. And then who's is it? The poker face chick in there too? Oh, you're right. Natasha Leone is in there too. Yeah, Natasha yeah. Leone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's fun because I knew I knew Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I knew Natasha Leone, but I couldn't. I didn't source the other two. So that's if he was still alive, Peter Falk would absolutely be in that crew. Oh yeah, but uh, Stephen Sondheim—that was his last on-screen appearance before he died. Oh shit! I didn't even know he was. He passed away. He passed away in 2021. Um, Also, if anyone is interested, Sondheim. uh, There's a great documentary about uh, feature about Sondheim. I think it's called Six by Sondheim. Is what it's called. It's a. It's on HBO. It's worth a watch if anybody wants to get some history on him. I wanted to just see like what what sort of um, what sort of Ryan Johnson Glass Onion direct shoutouts did you were you catching in this movie? Because I was thinking of like that doc scene. Mm-hmm. Like that, that I'm like, oh man, that is like Glass Onion is directly referencing this doc scene. Well, it's less of an overt reference and more just like a kind of setup of the story. But I think just these disparate friends who are all from different walks of life, you know, do different things, but they all want something from this rich person, you know, go to this remote place for a murder mystery party. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's basically an identical setup and also just in the way that all the characters are quote unquote friends, but really kind of hate each other. Um, I think all of that is, is directly lifted from this movie. Um, I also think the way that the police can only show up the next day. So you like leave this night for them to figure out the mystery. Um, you know, obviously I mentioned Sondheim showing up in, in glass onion himself. I, you know, all that kind of stuff is, is definitely there. What about you? Anything that sticks out to you? Well, when you mentioned everyone needing something, I was just thinking like, oh yeah, there is a ton of teat suckling in both of these movies for sure. Um, Kate Hudson was was giving me big Diane Cannon vibes. 100%. Now that I now that I caught this, this sort of like ditzy kind of person, like a lot of a lot of commonality there. And again, like the doc scene, obviously just the presence of a yacht in general, and like um, all this sort of stuff. Uh, definitely a lot of parallels. But again, the amount that I like, where it's not informing the movie that Ryan Johnson is making. He's not he's not recreating. It's not a remake. It. Yeah. Yeah. He's just he's just. Uh, Doing little little scene steals here and there to pay homage, and I don't know. I'm I'm really glad we saw it, even though I had somewhat mixed reactions to it. I thought it was a fun one, and I would recommend it to someone if they were like, "Oh man, I really loved Glass Onion. I think I'm gonna get really into Whodunits." I would definitely say like, "Oh man, yeah, check check this check Last Sheila out." I I also like it as a recommendation for that because it's not your typical death on the Nile or murder on the Orient Express, you know, recommendation where it's like those movies are, they, you know, Agatha Christie is so ever present in this genre. It's kind of nice to know that there's another one you can reference that isn't part of that canon. Absolutely. And then last shout out I wanted to give to is there is one shot I've really loved in this movie. And that was the night of the first game. The, the two speedboats passing each other and circling each other. I thought that was just a great shot. It's when the the, the team is going to town and, and James Coburn is coming back from like laying the game out. And they have this conversation and one boat is like circling the other. It's just really beautifully shot. And it was just like kind of stunning. Where I was like, 
fuck, that's a really good one. So there was some of that in there, but I also get what you were saying about like there's, there's parts that are not so great too, but that was a shot that I loved. Yeah, fair enough. I think that'll do it for our episode on The Last of Sheila. It's time to get something new on the board here, Jared, and it is your week, and we're looking for a hip shot here. We're looking for a hip shot. I'm very, I'm very annoyed at you, Drew. I'm very annoyed that you found this great hip shot in, what is it called? Parker? Get, get Parker, Parker Brothers? Get Carter. Okay. Because I had this great system in place for how I wanted to do my hip shots moving forward. You can save Get Carter, right? Yeah, I might I put think, it on next week if you don't this week. Because I've got, I want to tell you, I want to walk you through kind of my thought process and, and how it went down. For my hip shot, I knew it was going to be my week. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Videodrome, brick and mortar DVD place in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am going to rent The Last of Sheila. And then I am going to roam around the store and pick a movie based on the cover. Like true. The old Ballad of Cable Hogue strategy. Exactly. The old Ballad of Cable Hogue strategy. So I found one movie that I was like, what the hell is this? And there was a little blue tag on it that uh, someone on the staff put, just said recommended. And then I went up to the person at the desk and asked them, like, hey, what have you been watching lately? And he steered me to this other section in this other film. He said this was really good. And so I have a sticker recommendation, and then I have an employee at Videodrome recommendation, and then I have this uh, Carter movie. In the in the mix now because that came up organically and it's truly from a hip. But I feel like that's more your film. I feel okay. like it's not mine. Um, so, but I do want your involvement in this thing. Here's the here's one downside. I'll just say quickly. I think we've had too many '70s movies mm-hmm. lately, and this is going to be my last '70s movie for a while. Okay. Like, I, I've enjoyed them all. I'm, I still want to do these, but. From the, for, for the next couple of months, I'm going to do um, – for myself, I'm barring the 70s as a okay. decade. But the question I have for you, Drew, are you more in a Dustin Hoffman mood or a Gene Hackman mood? Man, it's hard to say without knowing the movies only because I've seen a good bit of Hoffman and not mm-hmm. quite as much Hackman, which makes me lean towards Hackman. Okay. But – if it's the right Hoffman, I I could be swayed. I, I my answer is is gonna be Hackman, but mm-hmm. but but I, I want I kind of want to know what the other one is too. Yeah. So the Hackman movie is a film called Night Moves. Ooh, okay. You ever heard of it? I have. I've never seen it. Okay, so that's one I'm I'm thinking of. And then the Hoffman movie is something called Straight Time. That I've never even heard of. Okay, so I did my research because I was nervous. Like, what if we can't track either of these down? Dustin Hoffman's Straight Time is, this was the one that was recommended to me by the person who works there. And he said, oh, it's this really cool Dustin Hoffman movie about this guy who, like, gets out of prison and tries to go back on the straight path but just can't can't quite do it. So I do have a little bit of information there. But you mentioned the Hackman. What, what? I... I could say something right now, and I think it would sway it, but I don't know if I want to. Really? Um, is it? It's the presence of a certain actor in the Hoffman oof. one. Say it, because I'll see it in the opening credits anyway, if we choose it. Say that. Say the actor, please. Harry Dean Stanton. Oof. 
He's in straight time. Mm-hmm. I God like, look, I'm, I'm looking at both on IMDb right now and both seem appetizing. So okay. I'm down yeah. for either. <laughs> All right. Um, what if I do a dart within a dart? I'm not throwing a dart, but here's what I mean. I have a, How about I have, evens or odds on the board? That, you should throw a dart for for those two. Well, I have a I have a d twenty oh, okay. right here. Perfect. And I'm thinking because because I see this as tying a back thing. into my mention of Dungeons and Dragons earlier. Perfect. Yeah, you're right. Um, okay, so what do you think? Even number we go Hoffman. Odd number we go Hackman. Yeah, because Hackman's the odd one of of the. Well, no, I I think Hackman's an even. All right, Hackman's even. I like that because you're right. Ho- Hoffman's even, a even. weird motherfucker. Hoffman is a like when you sent me that picture the other day from fucking uh, from Ishtar. It's like that's a, that's a, that's an odd. But then look at a, look at a Hackman and Birdcage. Anyway, I agree. Hackman even. Let's see what we get. Ten. So we're going Hackman. We're going the Hackman. I think that locks it in, Drew, with the die roll. Let's go. With Gene Hackman in Night Moves for number 13, if you're cool. 1975. I am very cool with that. All right. Well, let's give a quick recap of the board now. Number one, you can count on me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Universal Soldier. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Night Moves. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Tatan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. Love it, dude. I'm going lefty. Let's see. What, oh, oh, sorry. I just real quick, I wanted to mention I when I was reading that, I forgot Universal Soldier. I heard good things about. Oh, really? How so? How so? Uh, so <clears throat> on their Patreon, Blank Check just did Street Fighter, the movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm-hmm. And they both mentioned that that movie rules. Oh, OK. Awesome. All right. So you're. Yeah. So we're both. Ex- yeah, we're excited. We're excited. Uh, I'm going lefty. Let's see what we get, dude. All right. Dot has spoken. What's it got? Number nine. Wow. What? Universal Soldier. Are you kidding? No. People, I'm... No Are you lying gonna, to me? I, I took the video. I took the video, lefty, one throw. I And you'll see from the... Because my phone, when it creates... Of a video file, it just names it date and time. It it just happened. I have no. I didn't remember what number Universal Soldier was. I wasn't aiming. It was a lefty throw. Jesus I'm Christ. not kidding. Insane, no dude. It's so funny because when I lined up to throw it, I still take these videos. We don't do shit with them. Who wants to see a video of a dart throw? It's so lame. But I still do them. And I was like, why would I ever? Should I stop filming these and just throw it and take the picture? I'm so glad that I did because I did not know that nine was that number. I'm not kidding. We hit it. <laughs> Dude, that's unreal. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. Like back to back weeks, we've just got weird fucking energy between these dart throws. Dude, the, the, the 13 made sense because 
the the last time the first time we hit 13 or i guess it would be technically the second when we hit 13 on thunderbolt and lightfoot i threw it with purpose right-handed towards the bullseye and i got really close to the bullseye and hit inner 13 so when i did the second time i'm like i'm gonna try to throw the same way again because that was like a good dart throw and it went to the exact same spot so those kind of made sense the fact that this lefty hit the nine is insane insane mind-boggling well the dart works in mysterious ways and this this week it took us right where we uh <laughs> kind of i guess put we put it in the air and and uh, the dartboard took us there so uh universal soldier we're we're going to action territory we're gonna have some more top brutes we're gonna i'm I, this is gonna be the the I think only the second Jean-Claude Van Damme movie I've ever seen, because I've seen Bloodsport, but other than that, uh, I'm not familiar with his filmography. So, yeah, I'm excited for this one. Dude, I am too. The timing is beyond impeccable. A little streaming check here reveals that it's currently available, time of recording with subscription, on HBO Max, and then pay to rent anywhere else. So, the timing is good if you got HBO. in this movie? Dude, I'm 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 thrilled because I know of one other actor that's in this, and I was excited to see their name. And I've never seen a Jean Claude Van Damme movie ever, so I've, I've it's just a huge. Oh, you've never this, seen Bloodsport? Never seen Bloodsport. It's not oh. it's not a shamer in title of movie, but it's a shamer in movie star for me. So, which is kind of like a new subcategory. Uh, so, I am very excited. I, I am in the mood for something kind of goofy. I have a feeling there's going to be some good top brutes in this one. And um, I'm just excited. And the fact that it's on HBO Max right now is great. Like, it's, I think it's going to be easy. Anyone could pop it on. The dart works in mysterious ways. I just texted you the video, by the way, of the dart throw. So I'll, I'll verify this for, for the audience and make sure that there's no <laughs> fucking shenanigans going on over there. I don't care if people believe us or not. I know what happened. I was there. I got the video. It happened. Bloodsport, or not Bloodsport, Universal Soldier number nine. We should also mention we're coming down to the last couple episodes before our awards show for the first 50 movies that we watched. So this is going to be number 49. We're only going to have one more after this to choose from. That's going to do it for our episode on The Last of Sheila. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Play it up. It was straight, yeah. The oh, auto, it was the auto route. Yeah, it was straight. There he is with that cigarette again. Here I am. Were you inhaling? Was I was lucky to you? keep it in my mouth. I swear to God, <laughs> I was lucky that it was still in there. <laughs> Did you argue that with her? No, I had to because of the script. Oh, of course, I had to.
There was no nothing I could do. Nothing you could do. Look at this. I mean, it's like it's like a lollipop. <laughs> all I hoped was that the, the all I hoped was that the wind wasn't blowing it in my eyes. That's all I hoped. Look at this. Look at this. This is yeah. bad. This is really bad. Oh, there's no end to this scene. In that particular shot, you're holding it like a villain. It's almost burning her cheek. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what to do with it. I have no, look at that. No idea what to do with it.